Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, I can just hand you my my phone. Yeah, that's that's the dream. Yeah, let me give you that. So to give you some context, listeners, Dan is about to become a dad for the third time. So we should keep your phone on. And if... I'm going to be torn now because if we're having a great podcast, but I see a phone call coming in from your other half, that's clearly I'm in labor. Yeah. I'm going to be like, oh, do I tell him or do I keep going with the content for my podcast? This, is, this is more important. This is more important. Yeah. Thank you, mate. Was, that's, that's official now. You give me actual permission. Yeah. Oh, when I need a laugh, there's a helping people. Tom Fox talking to these funny people. He's asking what they find and they're telling the stories. Can somebody yell another name of the show, please? my mate. Hello, welcome back to My Mate Bought a Toaster. Today, I am joined by, well, podcaster, author, and possibly the role you're most famous for in my life is man who used to sit next to my wife yes. uh, in work, yes. at work, rather. Uh, it's the wonderful Dan Schreiber. Hi, Dan Schreiber. Hey, Tom Price. And your wife changed my life by giving me a job at the BBC, which allowed me to do everything I'm doing now. Was that her? That she, Did she? Okay, so can we get a cut of what's going on with you? Because no such thing as a fish. If we can get a couple of percent... That yeah. could really change our life back. That's a good point. I should have brought it up earlier in the process because <laughs> that's going to be a lot of back payments. Um, I was I was uh, I, I was working for QI at the time, and I was living in Oxford. But I moved to London. I quit my job with QI, yes. and I applied for a job at the BBC. And Beth, your wife, yes. was the person who was going through all the CVs that came in, yes. and she almost also didn't give me my game changing role by. The fact that when she was going through the CVs, she had to do a trainee thing of like, what do you look for in a CV? Yeah. And Beth told me that she was doing the test and it said, if they don't have a university education, do you still consider their application? And she clicked no. And it said, no, no, no. They may have relevance in other fields. That means that they could be relevant to it. So when my CV came up and said that I didn't even graduate high school properly, she saw the QI thing and maybe a couple of other things, but she really thought, oh, this is going to be a fun way of testing out this new BBC <laughs> idea that you don't need a university education. Wow. So she put me down into the give, a, give an interview to pile for that reason. So all these courses that we all have to go on, when you work at a big institution, they often make you go on these awareness courses so you do the right thing and you click on the right thing and you learn to become a better employer – Whenever you do those courses and think this is such a waste of time, you can unleash a Dan Schreiber on the world. Exactly. Oh my God, you could still be in Oxford doing who knows what, something very valuable, I'm sure. Uh, but it'd be a whole different life. A whole different life. Oh my gosh. So so that was when you uh, went to work at the BBC in development, right? This yeah. is what, 2003, four? Five, maybe. Five. Yeah, I think five or six. Okay. And then Beth and I both got poached to go to another yes. company at the same time. You we got had headhunting. We did. It was a big clandestine kind of like we had secret meetings and we kept chasing down the boss who would get to the big boss first to tell them <laughs> that they were quitting because <laughs> Beth won. So I had to come in immediately after and say, oh, I'm going too. Uh, so 
yeah, we were a bit of a we were a bit of a team mm. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, she sends her love. Sadly, she's not here today, Dan. It is just you and me uh, doing my mate bought a toaster today. And another twist on the uh, what we normally do on my mate bought a toaster. Another sign that you know we, we're we're clicking a different box on the show today. Mm. The drop down menu is kicking in, and normally would I invite a guest on who doesn't have an Amazon account? I'd click no. But the I'm applying the Schreiber rule. Well, the Beth rule. As the Beth rule. Well, trust me, there's a lot of those. <laughs> and I'm saying, all right, fine, let's let's go elsewhere. So, Dan, we're going into your eBay for my mate bought a toaster. Yes, today. if that's all right. And just so you know, while I'm talking to Dan, I am having a lovely conversation, but frantically scrolling because straight away the software is not as neat. The great thing about Amazon, and guys, you can do this at home if you listen to the podcast regularly. Go into your account, click on the drop down, and you can go to years on your Amazon account, oh. and you just go right back. Right. But on eBay, as you can see, I am scrolling. Also, your phone battery's nearly gone. It is, yeah. Okay, you can hang on. Do some of the I'm going to plug in. So if you just hold the line. Down, yeah, yeah, sure. Especially when we're waiting for a I'm in labour phone call. Yeah. We can't have that missed. Um, Tom's not made eye contact with me this whole time, guys. <laughs> We've been having this chat. Sounds lovely. Probably oh, at home shit, you're thinking, oh, they sound like they're really connecting. But actually, Tom's literally just been looking at my phone. Nodding, doing that radio. Great to see him. Can I just say how? And he's plugging in my phone, so this is going to be. You know, we're all winners here. If we are all winners here, you're getting free electricity. Yeah. There's free cookies. The cookies are amazing. The cookies are amazing. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant, brilliant studio, Gramercy Park Studios, guys. Um, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Cool. My scrolling, it, it will not allow me to scroll any further, uh, Dan Schreiber. Oh, so you've gone right to the beginning of my well, eBay existence. Well, I think I have, or, or at least to the beginning of where eBay allows you to go. Yeah, okay. Uh, so we're in, only in 2019, though. Oh, yeah, no, no. I've existed long before. Oh, that's a shame we don't get those early things. But to be honest, we've covered your early life. You worked uh, development at the BBC, and then, you know, other things happen. There we are. Covered. There we go. Done it. Um, so 29th of November... Uh, 2019. This is the first thing we can see on your eBay account. Um, and this is a postcards from The Observer. Oh, it's Clive James. Mm. Let's, let's, I don't know if we've had Clive James love on this podcast before. We need to have some Clive James love. He's a, he was a genius. He was a genius and I was very obsessed with him. And I was obsessed with him because I am an Aussie myself. I'm a half Aussie. Um, so I grew up in Australia for all my teenage years and Clive did that, that classic thing of coming over as an Aussie to the UK and to London and making it here. And he very much is in that interesting area that I love, which is he's a journalist, but he's a novelist. He's a, he's a TV presenter. He's a comedian, he's a playwright. He just kind of did what a lot of Aussies do is, um, this multitasking thing like Barry Humphreys (laughs) and, you know, they just do all these things and that always appealed to me. They won't be defined or or confined by stuff. He was a wonderful poet, Clive James as well. He's actually my favourite poet, which is really interesting because... Roger McGuff is furious. Unbelievable. (laughs) But he had, I mean, if, if anyone listening has not read Clive James' poems, the one that got me into him was, it was a nasty piece, which he wrote called The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered. And it's a book, and remaindered meaning that the book didn't sell and it went into the remaindered bookshops and then it put in warehouses. And the whole thing is spiteful about this person who was pitted to be the big new hope that Clive thought was a fraud and then the book didn't sell. And it's the joy of, (laughs) it's like so hate-filled joy. Christopher Hitchens used to have it above his desk. He loved it so much. It's just so much spite. But it's, it's beautifully funny and brilliant. And then when Clive was diagnosed with his cancer and he was 
dying over quite a long period, he got really heavily into poetry about his condition and about his life. And those books, the Injury Time one is called, and um, Sentence to Life is another. Yeah. They're incredible, incredible. To have someone like Clive James apply his brain to the insight of ending a life coming to an end is yes. ah, so comforting. With all of the, he was so articulate. He was so funny all the time. And to yeah. have him, he had all that time, because he there was quite a sort of, well, for Clive James, as usual, you'd imagine a very dry, humoured thing because he sort of announced he was about to die. Yeah. And then it took another two years and he kind of referenced that, didn't he? Yeah, he and gets he... really apologetic about it. It's like, <laughs> I keep telling you I'm going to be dead and I'm still here. It's getting embarrassing now. <laughs> but to have him have that much time on the ball, he had so much time where he thought he was going to die. Um, obviously, awful, tragic, but, you know, he was quite old, but awful and tragic. But to have that much time, at least you know there's going to be some good content's going to come out of that. For the rest yeah. of the human race... This is useful stuff for us to see how he approaches that stuff. Well, I was saying that the other day to someone that there's been a few people who've been given a terminal um, diagnosis and they know that time is limited. And even if you don't like their other stuff, having their brain applied to what is the final leg of their life. Yes. Clive James, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who again, there's oh. so much of his stuff that I disagreed with, but the stuff that he wrote about nearing the end of his life and the feelings and all that stuff incredible and really really comforting if you're scared of death like i am well of course um this is what's great about basically all wow this is uh, very early on in the podcast to make this statement all books all culture is essentially i'm going to get someone else's brain and go and put it somewhere i don't want my brain to be yep. so i'm going to go and park this massive brain next to death and then when it comes back it, it can report back and tell me stuff yeah what a great system guys it's amazing and it's also quite intimidating to approach there's a new book by rob delaney which he's written about the passing of his son which i can't well what do you do you want to support this guy and you want to hear his story i've got a son who's being born my third child on saturday and i passed his book in the bookshop and i bought it Mm. to support rob and because all the proceeds of the book are going to the charities that he wants them to go to yeah but I can't read it. So it, it was a lead article in the Times. It must be being published by HarperCollins. Um, it was a lead article in the Times, uh, and, and uh, you know, just uh, on on pretty much like page two or three, or whatever the Times. And just reading, gosh, where was I? I was like five or six paragraphs in. He writes so beautifully. I mm. cannot come close to comprehending what he's been through. And he lost his son as the, yes, the story. Yeah, uh, to brain cancer. And uh, I burst into tears. I was four paragraphs in burst into tears. I, I just find it, it's so powerful and i will read these things i will read it but it's so hard when you have young kids at the time exactly i I will read it i've got to wait a few years i just can't we're having a baby on saturday i but i so badly want to read it because Mm. it's such an intriguing emotion to be put down on paper and comedians often for me my whole you'll notice as you're going through the list of my ebay purchases comedy is my love i've always always loved comedians they're who i go to when i want to understand the world yeah so to have rob delaney's brain explaining this horrible tragedy is, you know, you never would wish that on Rob. So I'm really sorry that that's happened in his life. I think he's going to help a lot of people by writing about it, though. And um, But I just can't no, read no. it yet. It's too close. Just I'll keep, I've got a few books like that uh, in my in my collection. Um, what was the name of the, the brain surgeon? Henry... Henry Marsh. Henry Marsh, uh, Henry Marsh amazing. Uh, and also the other one about the guy who died of lung cancer, Breath from Air, or Heavy... Yeah. That like these books, I see them on my shelf, and I pick them up, and I read a few pages, and I'm like, this is unbelievably powerful, amazing stuff. But I just can't quite give myself over to that emotion right now. It's the power of it. Have know? you got the new Henry Marsh book? No, because he's got cancer himself now, yeah. hasn't he? So he's written a book about this process. He's doing the Hitchens, Clive James. He's writing from yeah. the inside. So is he terminally? Uh, 
It sounds like it. Right. Yeah, I've met, I've met Bleak Henry. Start to the show, by the way, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, souls everyone. Super deep. Um, <laughs> I've met Henry a few times because he came on my radio show that I used to co-produce, um, Museum of Curiosity. He was a guest on it, and then I did a live show with him in Edinburgh as a live version of Museum of Curiosity. And what he's just a spectacular human, yeah. and he's so. It's amazing. Anytime I go to a doctor's, I'll often see his book in a corner somewhere and you'll say, oh, Henry Marsh. And no one has anything bad to say about him. He's, really? just, he's just loved. He's universally loved within the yeah. within the doctor's world, I think. He's yeah. he's one of that first book about um, brain, being a brain surgeon and how... Do the, No Harm, I think it was Do called. No Harm, thank you. Yeah. The, the, the fine margins of, of... And also this sense very early on in the book that I'm just having a go, guys. We The brain is impossible to understand. And yeah. Here we are already talking about parking brains in awkward situations, and here's a guy who dives into the brain and goes, "Yeah, I mean, I think if I move that, it's going to work." But yeah. that's basically the reality of it. It is. There's still there's just still so much to find. Um, yeah, still so much to find as well on your eBay purchase history. Gosh, it seems odd for me saying that. <laughs> and they bought a toaster going to people's eBay's. Um, more loads more Clive James. So this must be when Clive died. I went through a period of just wanting to stock up on every single one of his books, find yes. signed copies of his books, yes. Um, yes. which I got a few of. Yes, okay, good. investing. Very good. This is the uh, like literary Bitcoin here. He died. <laughs> Buy all the signed ones. No, I, I, I really, <laughs> signing for me is, I. a lot of people find problem with me buying things that are signed. But for me, a signed book is the closest thing to a, I was here, yes. you know. I mean, it's it's extraordinary that that hand was there. You can you can literally go right. Clive was here. Yeah, I can pinpoint that he was here. Uh, and sometimes when you know the person, I was I was quite good friends with Sean Hughes, the comedian, who his anniversary for five years just went the other day, yesterday, I believe. of his passing. Of his passing, it's, it's been years? five years because oh, he was he died just after my first son was born, and I remember wanting to message him to say, "Hey, my boy's here," and I didn't realize he was ill. Like, no one did really. Yeah. It was quite sudden. Um, and I was in a secondhand bookshop about two months after he died, possibly, and I found one of his books and I opened it and it was a signed copy. And it was just like, Sean's here. Like, it's the closest thing to a ghost for me to see. It's yes. something really touching about that little bit of ink yes. wiggle. It's always going to be better than a selfie, guys. Yeah. I'm still, I'm aware, you know, I'm an autograph generation. I had an autograph book when I was a kid with Jason Donovan's autograph in a napkin. That was the only autograph in it. And I was obsessed with it because for the same, I'd look at the napkin and go, yeah, oh, Jason Donovan touch this napkin exactly so exciting it's so much more exciting than a selfie exactly but what's weird is nowadays i remember being a kid and getting a signature was so hard particularly living in sydney you know there was just no like where do you get a signature from and i was in waterstones just today because actually i've i've got a book out and i was doing signing myself and that's really fun and you look at the table of all the other books there and they're all signed like lenny henry's autobiography is signed in every shop that I've been into. And I was saying, as a kid, I would have killed for Lenny Henry's signature on a book. Now, it's impossible to find an unsigned... I know that's a joke of like, oh, an unsigned one is worth a fortune. But like... It's kind of hard to find unsigned ones these yeah. days. Uh, yeah, Uns- signed books have been have been devalued in their importance. You're absolutely right. My, I, I remember going to first time I lived in London. Same as you, South Wales. Admittedly, not New South Wales, but South Wales where I grew up. <laughs> autographs similarly hard to find, and and going to Hatchards on, yeah, on Piccadilly. Piccadilly. And that's their th- that was their thing. They just it was all signed books. Blown away. Yeah, the simplicity of it. Yeah. So who was your? It was Donovan, Jason Donovan. Your big. Yeah. Childhood thing. No, that's amazing. And, that's wicked. And uh, sadly, very recently died. God, so much death on the show today. Eddie Butler, a rugby uh, pundit and former rugby player, Eddie Butler. Uh, I had his autograph as well, and I would pour over them, look at them. And th- this is what you did before the internet, guys. Yeah. But this is what hero worship 
would would be a simpler thing because I would only have this piece of paper and I would invent whole things around them. I couldn't fall into a YouTube hole. Yeah. I would imagine a whole world of them from this one, one signature. Exactly. I met John Bon Jovi in Hong Kong when I was about 10 years old and he signed my Keep the Faith album and I laminated it and yeah. I used to carry it everywhere and <laughs> I would show everyone. And I lost it one day and it was the most devastating thing I think I've lost. I still... I still occasionally will just remember it and go, ah, oh, shit, like just out loud, like this fury. Oh. Like, wow, how could I be so careless? Surely, Dan, things are going well for you. Buy a new one. I mean, it's probably not going to say no, to Dan. Because I met him, you know. It's be that like, one. Yeah, he was, he'd just come out of um, a jacuzzi. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. So, sorry, again, this is a classic My Mate Bought a Toaster tangent. Uh, John Bon Jovi. Yeah. Jacuzzi. Is that actually, this is the thing. Is there a John Bon Jovi story you've got to tell us here? It's, a, you... it's not a great story. No, he... I don't care. There's, that's never a problem on this show. Please. <laughs> my parents used to have a salon in Hong Kong. My both, both my parents are hairdressers. And um, right next to the salon was a health um, spa kind of gym yeah. that had jacuzzis and so on inside. And my dad called me up and I was at home and he said, John Bon Jovi's just walked in. And they were playing. John Bon Jovi was in Hong Kong to play and we had tickets. So I rushed into town. I got up there and I had to wait for him to get out of the jacuzzi. And when he got out of the jacuzzi, he had his little robe on and came walking past and he signed it for me. And then, and he seemed really healthy and really fine. And then they pulled out on the gig. Oh, really? Yeah, for that night. For I couldn't work out why. Because I saw a healthy John Bon Jovi. I mean, that would have been a great tweet had it existed then, wouldn't yeah, it? So yeah. He seemed early, fine earlier on. It was fine. Wow. Yeah. John Bon Jovi. Not so much living on a prayer as sparring next to hair. That is, Very I mean, nice. that's impressed myself. Nice. What's the purchase history of this jokester? Stay tuned for my mate toaster. December 2019, 10th of December 2019. Hey, there's something to be said for going into eBay, guys. Welcome to the new iteration. Trust the genius podcaster to develop. You've developed My Mate Bought a Toaster. So I will get royalties. Um, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Enjoy that 8p. Charles Charming's challenges on the path. Oh, it's more Clive James. It's more Clive James. I didn't see Clive James at the end of that. I think there's a good... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Clive James... Two months worth of Clive James purchases. (laughs) The Clive James. A lot of, there was a lot of last-second auctioning, which is the most exhilarating thing about being on eBay. Oh, is yeah. I'm I am that dick who puts the high bid in with five seconds to go. Yeah, I want you to leave the room. Yeah, now. you know. have ruined so many things in my life. Often secondhand golf clubs, which I suspect maybe isn't you. In fact, no. but there's a there's a thing, isn't there? Lastminutebidder.com, and you can use software, right? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh God. And no, it comes I'm... in. I mean, fortunately, no one is is using that software to grab hold of Clive James or Ben Elton or Spike Yet. Milligan. Yes. <laughs> but you know, when Elton dies, when he's gone, it'll yeah. be. I saw Ben Elton the other day. You're kidding. I was at, right again. Na- the name droppery that I'm doing here is outrageous. But I was at uh, Rob Webb's birthday party. Okay. Right? He's a good man of uh, yours, right? Top guy. Top guy. And um, uh, I, Miles Jupp was there. And he lives in my hometown, so I always have a nice chat with Miles Jupp about Monmouth, all things Monmouth. I must mm-hmm. get Miles on the show. And I was going to leave the party, and I saw Miles, and I went to say, I wanted to say, Miles, nice to see you. I'll let you know when I'm next seeing my mum. We'll catch up. That's all I was going to say. And then I saw he was talking to Richard Osman and Ben Elton. Wow. I didn't say a word. I just walked out of there. There's no way, I, there's no way I'm interrupting. I'll, I'll look you up when I'm next visiting my mum. Too I'm much not, awesomeness. Ben Elton, I'm, I, I have, I've been lucky enough to interview him. Oh, wow. He's a... He's one of my absolute top, 
top three heroes. Me too. Because yeah. of his novels. His novels are incredible. Oh, I, I have Stark. no one to talk about his novels. Stark is my favourite novel. That was my environmental awakening. Oh my God. I'm, I'm reading This Other Eden right now. Yes, This Other I've Eden. I've never read it before and it's so exciting. It's like knowing that, I mean, it's like not having listened to a Beatles album that I've been saving, right? <laughs> You're not going to hear any two other people enthused over Ben Elton. I can't believe I've met my the love of my life of Ben Elton love. So the Ben Elton Book Club podcast will be coming soon. I'm ready. Dan. We had this in common the whole time. We've known each other all these years. He, I mean, they were thrillers, but they had weight. They were, you know, uh, uh, the the idea of books punching my brain into a different shape and moving me away from being uh, growing up in a little Tory town and being turning into that Tory because Ben Elton obviously rapidly left wing, especially then in the eighties yeah. and early nineties. All that stuff was in those books, but a thriller at the heart. They yeah. were page turners. They were, and the, and Stark was about a conspiracy theory, which was even yes. more exciting. It was about billionaires who were secretly going to ruin the world and fly off into space and allow it to die before they came back down. The Stark conspiracy yeah. and uh, the thrillerness of that was just incredible. Uh, but he wrote it like a stand-up. He put himself yes. in it. So Douglas Adams famously with Hitchhiker's Gone to the Galaxy, would do these tangents, which were, you'd, you'd read a, a paragraph tangent that you think, why did you waste that as a paragraph? That could be a whole novel. Some <laughs> other writers would use that as a whole novel. And Ben Elton does the same in those early novels. You yeah. sort of just read this two pages where you're like, that's a whole play. That's a whole movie. What have you done? Yeah. But that's why they're so rich. Yes. Yeah, they're awesome. There's, there's something about stand-ups and the stand-up brain that takes great pleasure in throwing away every now and again when I'm really on my metal with stand-up I'll throw in a fantastic bit knowing that there's another 15 minutes there or there's a whole thing there and just let it go that is, a, that mm. is a, something about stand-up mentality and to take that's why stand-ups are great writers or great actors and great creators because they know that to show that richness and then it's profu- I've just got loads more it's fine it's fine you read yeah. Ben Elton books like it's fine there'll be something else amazing yeah the, the other one as well was uh, was Gridlock, which was about, again, a conspiracy of the um, uh, fossil fuel giants and car giants suppressing battery technology. Yeah. So people would keep... And this was in 1990. Yeah. Years out. And I remember as a kid, I was 10 reading that, you know, for years after I would sit there in traffic jams looking miserably at, at cars and looking at emissions coming out of the backs of cars thinking, why? This is abs- madness. Yeah. I was really clued into it at an early age because of him. And the and the lead character of Gridlock at the beginning is a the creator of this new type of car who's yes. in a wheelchair, which was kind of at the time apparently was just quite a rare I mean it's still rare to have a leading character who's who's disabled. There yeah. are there are more of it now, but at the time yeah. I think that was a bit for a best selling author like Ben. Yeah. Um Stark was massive, sold million copies, right? Yes, um, so yes. Gridlock was his big his big return. I probably have about <laughs> 13 different copies in various different houses, like my parents' house and stuff, of Gridlock in its various different... Because I love the cover so much. Yes. It was just that red front of a car with Gridlock written like it's a yes. like a Mercedes sign or whatever. Well, that like, Also, that early 90s fluorescent colouring as well. Yeah, really yeah, bright. yeah. Same with This Other Eden as well was the same thing, I think. And there's a rocket, wasn't there, launching off, I remember. No, that's so This Other which Eden has an apple on the front, which is yes. kind of wired. And Stark is yes. the coolest one, which has a aerosol can, which says, Stark on the side, outside of like shooting out from the planet. Um, I'm getting them on t-shirts. Oh man, they're so cool. I've been trying to find posters of them. (laughs) But this is the thing. So obviously, Blackadder. I mean, for God's sake, I love Blackadder. My second son is named after Edmund Blackadder. Really? Uh, Yeah, yeah, he's an Edmund. (laughs) And uh, and yet, when I met Ben Elton, all I wanted to say was, "Your novels. I mean, you probably get this all the time. Kind of changed my life. There's changed my life vibes here, Ben. Sorry to say it, mate." You must be starting to get that now, right? Your your books and your podcast. You must meet people who go, oh, I, you know, I love what you do, and it's it's 
what's it like? That must be a real buzz. And do you still react properly or are you now over it and kind of like, no, no worries, whatever? No, definitely. I mean, I definitely haven't had anyone who feels the way that I feel about Ben Elton feel about me. That's that's never that's never <laughs> happened. Um, but also, I think because podcasting is a bit more intimate, you kind of don't have that hero worship for the listener in a way that you would have for a stand-up on, on TV. It's I think the game has changed slightly. Like with us, with No Such Thing as a Fish, there's four of us and we're a gang. So when people meet us, they almost meet us knowing the in-jokes. So yeah, they, if anything... It's not just, heroes, is it? It's, it's your, their peers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So they'll come up and they'll tell me a fact and then they'll diss me for something that I've said on the <laughs> podcast. Like, got that wrong, you idiot. And and it's said affectionately in the way that the others would say it on the show. But and quite so, unnerving for you to be like, yeah, all right, okay. I'm at an airport. I don't want bunts <laughs> exactly. from a stranger. <laughs> but no, I, I love it. I mean, the, the, the unintended consequence that you often get, and I'm sure you've had it a bunch throughout your career, is when someone writes to you and says, I've been sitting at home with anxiety and all right, or I'm really depressed or something and, and your show is what got me out of it. That That is the thing where you're like, whoa. That yeah. you, you forget that comedy often is is that saving thing for a lot of people. Whereas you just think, we're just having fun. I just think I can't believe you audiences are putting up with this. You guys must be <laughs> yeah. idiots. That's what I think. And then they come around and they're... And the one I get that with a lot is my radio show. Yeah, right. The, the music and the Saturday morning and the kind of bounciness of it. People are like, it's been... I've had a rubbish time. This is great. Thank you. Yeah. And that is... It is touching. It's really touching. Um, just keep them coming here, guys. At ToasterPod on Twitter, okay? Just... I just need... I need validation sort of once a day. Mid-morning tends to be a dip. <laughs> Thank, thanks so much. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, Dan Schreiber, continuing your eBay journey mm-hmm. here. 1984, you bought this 2019, 21st December 2019. Sorry, 1984. Yeah, the book 1984 by George Orwell, which you... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, um, you know, it's a classic book. I mean, any reason why you bought it? Were we, we buying... I think, um, yes. I think I wanted to see how similar it was to Ben Elton's Blind Faith, which is the superior <laughs> of the Orwellian books. Orwell um, is the poor man's Elton. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, true, true. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, good. So, Celebrity, how entertainers took over the world. Marina Hyde. So here you are, 2019, before muggles like me realise Marina Hyde's a total genius. Mm. You're buying, tell me about this book. Um, It was a book that is her analysing celebrity culture through various different themes. So she'll look at celebrity dogs and the pet craze that they had. And um, so it was an actual book because she hasn't written an actual book. Uh, She's got a new collected articles book that's just come out, which is magnificent. But she she's a journalist. And so but this is this is a book by her. 
Um, this is called A Celebrity, How Entertainers Took Over the World and Why We Need an Exit Strategy. Yeah, know. and I think she wrote it many, many... I, I had that book years and years ago. So this was me remembering that I wanted to see it again. And I think it was because I was getting ready to write my own book, um, or at least planning. And I, I thought, she's a hero. Let me see how she structured her book and did the different themes. Because How many books have you done now? Is it this is one that's out now? Is it's isn't... it's my first solo book that's just come out, okay. but I've done three with no such thing as a fish. Right. And okay. what we did was we we wrote really topical books, which was the book of the year, twenty seventeen. And the idea was, I, I had this idea that all the facts that we find for a fish are they had to have happened sometime, right? So surely in the space of a year, enough amazing stuff can happen to fill a whole book. And so they were meant to be annuals that came out every year. And we did three of them. And so it was just a look at the weird ass year. Yeah. But we had to hand the book in in August. So you kind of missed out <laughs> on quite a chunk of the also, year. quite tricky in 2020 when all the records are very bleak. Well, we were going to do the booklet of the year for that year, <laughs> yes, um, but yes. we didn't end up making it. Um, um, Marina Hyde is worth just just stopping briefly to say how fantastic she is. I mean, she she was a sports journalist, wasn't she? She wrote a lot of sports stuff. Was she right? I think so. I think so. And now she's become the Catelyn Moran, Charlie Brooker type, just just acidic and hilarious and always spot on the money. Saturday yeah. mornings is basically Marina Hyde time. Exactly, and just so quick to get that opinion formed in her head and down on paper, which yes. is amazing. Yes, she's fantastic. She's fantastic. Um, here we go, Martin Amis, London Fields. I've I read a Martin Amis when. I was younger, but I don't know. I always feel they're a bit much to take on. I don't know why. I the so. reason I got that book was, I have to say, Christmas you, Eve. By the way, you bought this. Yeah. Okay. Right. Twenty nineteen Christmas. In twenty nineteen. There you right. are. Kids everywhere. Christmas is coming. I'm going to get a Martin Amos in my life. Yeah. Offset the joy. I think I was. I was would have been at my um my in laws down in a place in um called Horham, uh, and. I, I'm away from my books when I'm there, so you'll notice just a lot of books being ordered because I can't be without them. Martin Amos, I haven't actually fully read a novel of his. I've read bits of his novels, including that. But yeah. what I have read is his autobiography called Experience, which I think is quite possibly the best autobiography ever written. Mm. It's so rich and incredible and so many little stories in it that are his his cousin who was very close to um, at the beginning of the book she gets kidnapped and murdered by one of the most infamous murderers um, what's his name uh, I can't remember British murderer no um, the, I don't know where to start the, the big one who in the in the I guess what was it the 70s or 80s uh, 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 Dennis Nielsen Fred West Fred West maybe I want to say Fred West okay. I could be getting that wrong but Fine. it opens with that Her his cousin goes missing at a bus stop and becomes one of the victims of possibly Fred West and um, so you open it with that, then you have the fact that he's of this Amos lineage, yes. and the story. Talk about Kingsley in the book. Though. He talks about him a lot, and um, a mutual buddy of ours, Jason Hazley, told me about an extract from it, which he absolutely loves, which is where apparently Kingsley was obsessed with the Bill, and he watched the Bill nonstop. <laughs> and Amos says Kingsley that Amos watching the Bill, yeah, amazing. or like Holby City, one of those ones. And yeah. at the end of every episode, as soon as the credits run, he'd sit back, and go, bah, brilliant, wouldn't change a word. <laughs> And so there's stories like that. And then you have the whole thing of like this sudden literati thing, which I just find, regardless if you think they're dicks or not, I think that whole thing of Hitchens and um, um, Salman Rushdie and Clive James, they all appear as characters in this book. And they were all part of this elite asshole kind yes. of like we're, we think we're too good. But yeah. Martin, Martin Amos just presents it brilliantly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's like a book review show. I know, I know. I was thinking about that. <laughs> and I was just trying to sort of, the thing I was trying to tie it back into, because I do, I, I haven't read that Martin Amos. I read Times Arrow years ago. Oh, yeah. That's apparently, my wife read that and said it's brilliant. Yeah, it's good. It was good. But also, I, know, I always forget books, Dan. The thing I wanted to tune into was you're talking about being in your in-laws. 
and having to have books around you. What? Why I need to have a nest of books around me all the time? Considering, you know, the amount of time I actually sit and calmly, quietly, focusedly read a book is so minimal. Yeah. What is the? And I've talked to Robin Ince about this a lot as well because he is an open. Uh, book fetishist. Yeah, his new book is about that. Uh, right, going round, he goes around all the second-hand bookshops and yeah. bookshops of the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, the bibliomaniac. Joy. It's called the joy of doing that. Yeah, I mean, you'd be so happy as a second-hand bookseller if you see Robin Ince walk in your into your bookshop. Yeah, because <laughs> you know he's leaving with like ten books. <sighs> that is the mortgage sorted. <laughs> um, what is it though? Can you try and hone it down in a nutshell that makes us like that? Was it? I don't know. I, I just, I just always find my dad used to have a big. Uh, big bookshelf slabs and he kept all his books he was a book hoarder so he had all his penguin classics from the 50s and when he died we found like a signed Arthur Ransom in there wow. and amazing stuff um, and is it is it a sort of continuity is it a timeline thing is it time travel where I know that that's the past the safe past and it's still with me I don't know I'm, I'm fascinated to know where is the comfort of books but also what is the curiosity of books what's the sort of interplay I really don't know I've never weirdly never thought about it all I know is that if I go somewhere I'll have four books in my bag <laughs> yes, regardless yes. I just have to I can't go anywhere without without books and my wife will always say when are you going to read it yeah, yeah. and I say what if we're stuck in traffic for seven hours what if like that's I'm prepared I'm ready um, well. she's like, couldn't you bring food or nappies for our kids? I'm like, well, yes, I could, but it's fine. we could buy those on the way. Exactly. I can't buy a, cl- a signed Ben Elton. Exactly. You know, from services. <laughs> it, but it's I do that same thing. Well. The other thing I do, and it's so funny, being a someone was tweeting about this the other day, being a, an avid book lover during a time of children. You know, every morning I traipse downstairs. My kids are a bit older now, six and ten, so it's easier. Okay. But traipsing down those stairs in the morning with my phone and my book every morning, and my wife just look at me like, what? What's the point? You never. You're going to pick up one of those for a bit, and then you're going to have to deal with, you know, one of the kids' foot being on fire. Like it's 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 ridiculous. This sort of comfort blanket of them. It really is, and I don't. I genuinely. I know we've been going on about Ben Elton, but mm. um, in the next few weeks is going to be a weird one for me because I've got a new baby arriving. We're going to have all these like early nights, um, or sorry, early days where we're getting up and just doing the multiple feeds and doing the nappy changes. You are not reading. Well, the thing is, is that the where my head goes to is the comfort blanket thing, and I've realised just flat out, Ben Elton is my comfort blanket. So. Even just to have, so I've I've bought I've stocked up on a bunch of, but even, I'm not going to read any of them. I'm going to read this other Eden until I get to a point where I can't read anymore. But they'll just be near me. Yes, I don't know why. It just makes me feel better. As oh, this is so this is good book therapy, guys. I sit in the corner of my little study and I've got the same thing I've recreated, and some of them are my dad's books. I've recreated a big wall of books, and I'll sit and I'll just I'll just look at them like someone looking out on nature, looking at trees. I will happily look at the books, and each one. Well, there's a lot I haven't read. That's the other problem. I look at the ones I haven't read and feel anxiety about my need to read those right. ones. But looking back at all of them, it's just like a... I think it's lineage. I think it's looking at them and remembering the different times. And I always keep the bookmark from each book. Right. So often it's a tube ticket yeah. or a mat- football match ticket or something. So they sort of become like a museum, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really nice. Yeah, they. I, I love finding secondhand books now where people have written in the margins and yes. underlined stuff. That's become my new favourite kind of book. Because <laughs> so good. sometimes they actually, when they underline it, it really makes that paragraph more powerful that I would have just mowed over, you know, and I never mean, have got into. Please, there is a book or something in, uh, it's just called it Annotations, and yeah. you, you only ever review books via the annotations you discover. That would be amazing. I would love, there's a series of books that I would love for it to be released, which is Clive James's personal library. 
that's all he used to do when he was reviewing a book, which he constantly did. He'd annotate in the sides and oh, he would wow. write. So I think there was a book that he wrote, which was called Cultural Amnesia, which was yes. his, he says, his big masterpiece. And it was just biographies of, of important people. But really, bite, I've got it. It's, it's brilliant because you yeah. can dip in and read a bite-sized thing about whoever, whatever. And it's 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 so enriching, but but quick and efficient, especially if you have, for example three young children exactly but i believe that all of that stuff was taken from when he was flipping through his books and reading what his ideas were in the margins of these books so out there there'll be a biography of groucho marx that has all his thoughts down the sides oh my god yeah collecting all those exactly and i have i have a few this is but you'll see if you if you scroll through my ebay Mm, there's more there's a signed clive james here 30th of december 2019 the book of my enemy the book of my enemy which is the poem i was talking about but um Probably my most exciting purchases on eBay were a series of personally owned Spike Milligan books because Spike used to write on the inside of his books. He would always write something interesting. And what I got was this. This is honestly the most amazing purchase I've ever got. And I said to my wife because it came up on eBay and there was three days left on the auction. And I said, honey, I'm about to bid on something (laughs) with a stupid amount of money. And I'm so sorry, but I need this. I need this thing. And I was, I, I'd put a, I, you know, we were fresh with a new kid, and how this long is the can he go without time. nappies? Yeah, exactly. Okay, all right. So the the money that I put down to bid for this, my top bid was a thousand five hundred pounds. I've never ever gone into that kind of territory before, right? Didn't even really have the money to do it at the time. And the the final bidding went down, and I got it for forty eight pounds because no one else bid on it just zero other people bid on it and what it was is it was a book it was a map of london that it was just one of those books that you open it has every street and it's it's like a google maps kind of thing of london and um it's like a street map and um leather bound really beautiful but inside spike had hand drawn all because i guess he was trying to memorize the roots of where he was walking to places so he would hand draw a line that led from his office to his local grocers, to his house, to his everything. And he would write on it saying, this is the local grocers and this is the office and this is how, make sure to take this route. And this was for him. It was his personal book. And then flipping through it, and this wasn't a part of the pictures, there was stuff where he would circle, this is where mum lived before she moved to India with me as a kid. I'm sorry, how the hell did you get this for 48 pounds? I know. This is insane. It's extraordinary. It's And I have about five books that were of his personal collection, which all have doodles and all that sort of stuff inside. And um, and one really sweet book that I have is a book where it has doodles from his daughter, Laura, inside when she was two and a half years old. And as I was saying before, living in Sydney, you know, so isolated, could never get a, a Lenny Henry signature or whatever it is that I wanted, <laughs> right? Um, I, I was so far away from all the heroes that I obsessed over as a child. And one day my mum was in a shop, secondhand shop, and she found a bunch of Goon Show vinyl records and she bought it for me, even though we didn't have a vinyl player, but she knew how much I loved Goon Show. Yeah. And a man who she was then in another shop walked up to her and said, oh, Goon Show records, those are amazing. And she went, yeah, my son's obsessed with the goons and I got it for him. And he said, oh, I used to be married to Spike Milligan's daughter, Laura. And she went, no way. And... She went, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, oh, what? She lives in Australia. Yeah, she lives in Avalon. Avalon is where I live. That's insane. Turned out we were neighbors by a five minute drive from each other. And I, n- I didn't meet her at the time, but she was going to England basically to say goodbye to Spike because he was quite ill. And right. so I wrote Spike a letter and gave him 
uh, and included a couple of books and she took it to England, read him my letter by his bed and he signed my books. And Laura and I have since become very, very good friends and she's become an author herself and she, an illustration from one of her books now hangs, the original hangs on the wall of my son's uh, room because it's signed to my son Wilf. Um, so you could actually steal that because your son's called Wilf and it could be applicable to your kids. This is beautiful. But so now I have a book that I'm going to bring back to Sydney, which is from her dad's personal collection which is got her doodles have all the way through as a two and a half year old. I, I told her the other day, yeah. Um, you should say, like, you can have it, but it, it was £48 plus, <laughs> plus P&P yeah. for us. So let's call it 50. That's a beautiful thing. It was so, and so and, but that one book where, and I feel like I should give that book back to the family as well, where it has all the, the writings about this is where mum lived and this is where my first job was. And this, you know, it's yeah. like, I, I feel like everyone should do that. Get a map of the, the city that you grew up in and just map it out for your kids to look at. But the, the coincidences and the networking and the connections that you make, Dan Schreiber, this is very, this is Schreiber-esque. This right. is Schreiber-esque. You do do this thing where you meet people and you have a natural enthusiasm, you have a natural warmth and a charm about you, and you end up making all those connections. And this is how the John Lloyd thing happened, right? Which started mm. everything. Yes, that's true. Yeah, so before give, Beth. Yeah. Before, yeah, before be Beth, fair, there was one fair. other person who changed my life. I, I think John Lloyd probably gets more credit than Beth Murray. Um, <laughs> but, but this is something which you're amazing at doing because you just have this sort of... Do you think it's because you grew up in Australia and you felt like all your heroes and all the cultural stuff was over here in the UK and you felt like a natural pull, you wanted to get over here and and meet these people? So because you've got to do it, you just have a kind of fearlessness about you. You don't seem to be nervous about it. You're just like, I'm going to throw myself into it and see what happens. Yeah, I think think probably there's a lot of, um, you know, I grew up in Hong Kong, which was a very bizarre place to grow up in. And I think it instilled a lot of confidence in me. And I was very privileged. I was, you know, I I grew up around. It's quite funny because my parents were, you know, self-made hairdressers, you know, mm. that, that's that's what they do for a living. But in Hong Kong, you're living around billionaires, which we didn't know as kids at the time. But you're sort of like looking on Facebook now going, hang on, that kid in my class, <laughs> his dad owns all the Shangri-La hotels? What? Um, and we never had that kind of money, but it didn't matter. You were, you were part of the big mess. And Hong Kong, every single kid that I grew up around came from a different cultural background. Yeah. And most of them were either half Caucasian and then half something else, um, or entirely Chinese or entirely Japanese or whatever. That kind of cultural mix meant that I kind of walked into every single possible room where I was faced with a different culture. If I went to my friend, you know, Amrish's house for dinner afterwards, um, after school one day or whatever, it would be, we would be in total in Indian culture in his house and doing all the traditions. And I'd go to a Jewish friend's house and we would have Jewish, like, it made me sort of appreciate that there's no, I just could never lose confidence in a room because I just knew it all. It felt familiar. And also you haven't been locked into the status or the class system that we've got here in the UK. You're just like, you have none of that crap. It still blows my mind. but It's baked into us. Yeah, and yeah. that so you you would have gone to Miles Chap and Richard Osman and Ben Elton. You'd have gone like, hey guys, nice thanks, but you know, like yeah, yeah. in a lovely way. Whereas I have to go, no, 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 I'm uh, I, I'm I'm downstairs. I, they're upstairs, I'm downstairs. <laughs> it's true though. I think to an extent that's to the confidence extent. that that's what that gave me, that upbringing. Um, and my parents were very gung ho, and my dad was very much into reading all those kind of Anthony Robbins books and Chicken Soup for the Soul, where and he got me into that as a kid. And there's just something, all those stories are so life-affirming, like, go out and get it and do yeah. that. And I guess that was sort of subtly baked into me as a yeah. result of it. Yeah. January 2020, uh, you have bought um, The Ruttles. 
Yeah. Here we go. Oh, this that, item is no longer available. That's because Dan Schreiber bought it. I think I bought that when Neil Innes passed away. And okay. God, yeah, I'll tell you what, guys. This Dan Schreiber is like, you're like some sort of ambulance chaser on eBay. <laughs> Just inching along. <laughs> Who's cocked it? Right. The Queen dies. I'm going to get all her stamps. Well, I, I'd met Neil again by doing Museum of Curiosity. I had him come on as a guest. And also I have a friend in America called Ken Plume who was very good friends with him. And Ken, when he came over to the UK, Neil drove up from his countryside ha- uh, house to have breakfast with him and then to drive him to the airport. And I was at the breakfast and we were in a little calf. And he was just such an incredible brain and one that was never, I feel, as appreciated as the rest of the Pythons because his brain was Python brain. It was so yes. surreal and funny and he was ridiculous but also very serious and so what was the story within this why wasn't he fully absorbed into the python machine why was he why is he never seen as a python because i think he was sort of like alexi sale with the young ones he dipped in but he had his own thing mm. he had the 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 bonzo um band. bonzo dog doodah band, yeah, and, yeah and he had his songs which were a curious mix of sometimes being funny but also being really heartfelt and then mm. you know the ruttles eric idol and him put that together yeah. and he he wrote all the songs and the music they're not really that funny. Or maybe that's a dated thing. Maybe they were hilarious at the time. But, yes. you know, they're quite heartfelt tributes. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting. Uh, look, talking of Pythons, here we go. Uh, Monty Python Live. This is a hardback book um, from uh, or by Eric Idle, uh, it says here. Yes. Two ninety nine with free postage. Man. That's right. Bargain. I think possibly that's when Terry Jones passed away. Oh, my that God. He's unbelievable. That. So Ken Plume again, who I just mentioned on that very same trip that I met, Neil Innes. Mm. Ken says to me one night, I'm going out for drinks with Terry Jones. Do you want to come? I was like, of course I want to come. <laughs> and I went and Terry Jones was a massive nerd. Um, you know, he made all those historical documentaries and he was obsessed with history, yeah. Chaucer and the medieval yeah. times and so on. And um, so you're not nervous by this about this situation. You're gonna go you're gonna go for a drink with Terry Jones, did you say? Yeah, with Terry fine. Jones. That's fine. Yeah, I'm gonna go to that. Yeah. Uh, I just I want to be in Dan Schreiber's brain for this because at the moment Tom Price is going oh no, uh, well no I don't <laughs> no I was intimidated obviously but Fine, I, okay but as soon as I got there I thought and he was he was a bit sort of um, slightly erratic I think it was the beginning of his illness which mm-hmm. no one had identified and we got chatting and obviously because I knew about his historical stuff and the, with the QI stuff that I was doing at the time I was able to sort of we had a great chat about our favorite kind of facts and stuff and. The most exciting thing of all was right at the end of it, he said to me, "Um, I'd love to do a drink again with you. I know Ken's going away, but uh, give me your email. So I gave my email over, and I think it was a week later, I get an email from Terry saying, hey, that was really fun the other night. Do you want to come out again next week? I'm having drinks with a psychologist friend of mine and someone else. And, And I had two or three dinner dates with Terry off the back of this as a result. Just discuss, just talking shit, basically. Yeah, just discussing, you know, so one of the guys that was there was called um, Kevin, who is a psychologist who wrote about psychopaths at the same time Ronson was writing about psychopath test. Yeah. And he also, he teamed up with, and this was part of the chat of the night, he teamed up with Andy McNabb because they'd secretly been brought in by the coaches of the England football squad to train psychologically the players during penalty shootouts and I don't know if this has been revealed even so I might get in trouble for saying it but I'm sure it has the idea was at the last split second every supposed football player from the England squad would suddenly get nervous and change their decision and what they were trying to train them to do was stick to their guns and not flip out and just do what they needed to do 
And then that World Cup, there was no penalty shootout. So, so it didn't, yeah, it didn't get used. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so it was chats like that. And then it was chats about, it was never chats about Python, really. I mean, no. occasionally in the later dinners that we had, I would pump stuff in because, again, I could sense something was going on with Terry. And the only way he seemed to like leap back into a proper engagement was when you brought up like, oh, I remember you and Michael Palin did that amazing Ripping Yarns episode. And he would suddenly be animated and he would come back with all these stories. Um, But then you'd lose him again for a bit. And yeah, yeah, it was a sad time to have met him in his life. At the same time, it was it was beautiful to have the opportunity to spend that time with this with this hero this he directed life of brian yeah, like i mean, I mean <laughs> where do you come even start on. fantastic fantastic man um look here's the oxford diecast ford anglia vivian from the young ones uh it's a it's a model car yes. eight pounds i mean god I, so there was a series of because this is the period now where i'm a dad for the second time and i want to buy my kids so i bought my sons an, an andy kaufman wrestling toy because he was he was part of his life was the wwf wrestling yes. with jerry lawler so i got an andy kaufman toy i got um these models of cars so you can get spike milligan's mini that he just used to drive in real life which is made as a model and then vivian's car and vivian's car i learned about via my friend joel morris who you know as well obviously and even even the toys you buy your kids have british comedy baked into their dna it's fabulous um yeah, so it's really fun because like just this morning um, in the bath, sorry, last night in the bath, and Wilf was still playing with it this morning, um, last night's bath battle was between two toys that Wilf brought up, which was a Godzilla toy from the new Godzilla movie and Andy Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, when have those toys ever met? Two titans yeah, finally yeah. meeting. That would be great. And, um, and a my best purchase for Wilf when he was born, which would be on there, but it's in 2017, so yeah. we only got to start at 2019, was a vintage Robin Williams Mork toy still inside its packaging and I bought two of them so I took one out so he plays with Mork um, yeah and then the other one's nicely safe that's not my weird Robin Williams story you got a weird Robin Williams I, I wonder if you have a connection to this I wonder if you know so I was in LA and um, making Torchwood years ago and I had a bit of time out there and I went for drinks with some friends and there was a girl called Zelda his daughter I had no idea wow. hung out with her all night chatted to her blah 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 that was it. The next day, my friend was like, that's Robin Williams' daughter. <laughs> right, that's that's the Tom Price version of, of Connection to Fame. If that was Dan Schreiber, yeah, so then Robin Williams emailed me the next day and said, hey, I hear you were hanging out with my daughter. We should hang out sometime. Tom Price, the next day, goes, Jesus, what the fuck? And then I'm flying home. Patreon, Patreon, Patreon.com forward slash toaster pod. Patreon, Patreon, Patreon.com Look, here we go. Uh, 21st of July 2020, Ben Elton, Inconceivable. This is a two-cassette audiobook you've bought. <laughs> so cassette I... tape. Dan, what's that? Is that going in your in your 1990s car? So Are you listening to that? I just started on Audible at that point, and none of the Ben Elton books that I wanted were available, or at least they were being read by someone that I didn't want them to be read by. And yeah. I think Inconceivable is read by Hugh Laurie in yes. that. And yes. I bought Stark, which was read by Adrian Edmondson, and oh, Gridlock, gang. read by Adrian Edmondson. And what I discovered was on, and this was an Amazon purchase, is that you can buy these tape, like a classic Walkman, 
But what you could do is you could plug the Walkman into your laptop. So yeah. as you're listening to the tape, it transfers the file into an audio file USB to, to an MP3. Yeah. Here's my question to you with all these things that you're buying, all these books and yeah. tapes and all this stuff. To, when do you get the time to consume? We mentioned this earlier on with the kids, but to consume this stuff, or, or do you just want to collect and museum it? Yeah, it's, it's a double. It's, it's a collection. And then my things come in, in circles where... I'll not want to read a Spike Milligan book or a Ben Elton book for two years. And then one night I'll just be on my way home and be like, I need Ben back in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I know yeah. I can just open up the cupboard and there's the audio cassettes and there's the. I mean, you'll see a Ben Elton purchase on there, which is. Signed, the signed. Well, uh, wait, pictures. Till, wait till you get to the real kicker, oh, which I've is. skipped on ahead. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm going back to Ben Elton. I'm going to find Ben Elton. Um, so my. my Time travel destination, if I was told you could go and see one historical stand-up set, yeah. mine would be when Ben Elton and Rick Mail toured together. Oh, yeah. And they used to do quite a few tours together, but I the, the idea of those pairing, and Rick, the funniest man probably who ever lived, just natural funniness. Mm. And I love watching his stand-up, of which there's so little online. But, yes. you know, where It was he, never just him, was it? He always... Well, he he, then... he kind of doubled up, but his he did used to have a stand up set, like a forty minute set. Yeah. Um. And but about fifteen minutes of that was him just walking out, the audience immediately laughing at him and going, "What is it? <laughs> what, what are you laughing at?" Like that was it, right? Um. So what I found on eBay was a poster from their nineteen eighty four tour, which is signed by Rick and Ben, and it's signed to someone else. I think someone called Andy or something like that. And my plan is to meet Ben, and I want him to cross it out and write to the Schreiber and then I'm going to get that framed because it's a poster that represents so much to me of what I my dream is to find someone to go on a double-headed tour with and that's what I want. I want I want to find my Rick male because I'm not naturally funny like a Rick. You, you want to find that funny bones human to come on tour with. That is genius. But it just it just represents so much. Like, you know, we put things on our walls because they make us feel a certain thing. This poster is just like, I just feel like that's for me the pinnacle of the best night of stand-up. Yeah. Ben and Rick. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. And, and at Rick at his peak where the young ones had just come out yeah. and, and the audience were going nuts screaming because you've still got as a stand-up then he's still got the the legacy of training up and getting good before the fame has ruined him because as a comic the fame always eventually ruins you because you become lazy mm. so he's still got all those instincts and he knows he's wonderful but it hasn't gone too far at that point then yeah. you've got Ben Elton at his political pomp where he's just ranting about Maggie that is that is spot on what a good night as well like yeah perfect box ticking of good bits of comedy yeah I'll tell you what, though, that, that idea of sort of like fame making you lazy. I yeah. went to see the final tour of Billy Connolly's um, f- final major tour, High Horse, it was called. And I remember it was at the Hammersmith Apollo. Proving the rule, but yeah, go on. Yeah, and, um, and uh, Buddy Ashling B was there. She was like a few rows ahead of me. And we, we waved high. And, <laughs> um, and he, I thought he was ill at this point, at the beginning of his illness, you know, and his, his arm was already shaking. Yeah. And this is a few years ago. I mean, it's like six years ago now or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We thought... I'm here to pay tribute to possibly the greatest stand-up that we've ever known, yeah. and and I'm not expecting a good show. I don't know why. I came in kind of thinking, this is is what's this going to be? Kind of like going to see Bob Dylan live now. Exactly. He tore the roof off. <laughs> he did something like two hours standing in the same spot. He didn't have a single sip of water, and he was oh. mind-blowing. And I remember seeing Ashling right after, and we just looked at each other and went, it makes you want to quit, because if he's that... like. 
Ashling, who was at the peak of her like arrival into the into the comedy scene at that point, that's what that set is what you expect her generation of stand up to be pulling out in their like debut year, and he's doing this in what his sixtieth year as a stand up yes. or whatever. It was like, oh man, we witnessed God here. He, he, really, he really, there is no one better. There was no one who could who could, and he's retired from standing. Yeah, he? he's still alive, Billy. He Conway. is, yeah. He's done yeah. incredibly well because it was a kind of a death sentence which he, when he announced he was really ill. Years he's Clive Jamesing it. He's he's, 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 he's given us the long term. Maybe he'll come back and do stand up again. But, I hope he does. Yeah. Um, the, that thing of watching when he, I used to watch his travel show when I was a kid. You know, on TV, mm. and he would go to any place, and he'd just jump on stage. And obviously, that was a TV show. I'm sure it was produced, and it was, but you could still tell it was just a very natural, endless source. He's just a he's just a spring, a, a spring of constant stand up. The guy just keeps it coming in a way that no one else really. Can, I don't know anyone else who can compare to. And it. also, you could, if you think of any hostile environment where you needed to send someone in, yeah. I'd send Billy Connolly in. Didn't he do Northern Ireland? I'm sure back in the day he did stand up in Northern Ireland. I'm sure there was a thing years and years ago. I'll have to Google that. Yeah, I don't know. But, but he just feels like if you want to diffuse a room, send Billy Connolly yeah, in yeah, because yeah. there is not a single person who doesn't like him. We were talking about the um, the class issue before about uh, when I arrived here and it being very different to Hong Kong and Australia, which yes. class is, is not as defined openly as it is in the UK. Yeah, And I used to find that I used to go gigging all around the country doing stand-up and anywhere that I went... Because of my accent, I was given a pass. I was a bit of an alien. It just didn't matter. I can't be placed into a into a class system, and that was so it was so nice for me as a stand-up, but possibly even refreshing for um, the audience who were just like, "Ah, oh, this guy's just weird. Fine, yeah. <laughs> we, we don't need to bracket him in any kind but of." But also, way. British audiences love that because you can tell us what we're like. You you are you yeah, sound yeah. like an outsider, therefore tell us what we're like. Yes, That's, exactly. That is always a free pass, and that is you know, it's you still got to be good though, Dan. You still I know. Well, that's where that's where that failed. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's only so long your accent can get away uh, with. I know that's not true, but it was a good two minutes. <laughs> um, look, here we go. Uh, Christmas Eve, twenty twenty one, the Bible Code, saving the world. Yeah, this is hell? this is when I was. Because I've just written this book, The Theory of Everything Else, which is all about crazy, wonderful theories. And I went on a binge of buying all of the most. This guy, Michael Drosnan. So this book was massive. Do you remember the Bible Code? Yeah, look, he's done the Bible Code 2 as well. Oh my God, he did Bible Code 3, which is the most batshit of the three of them. It's incredible. So, so what's this thing? Is it literally looking for actual, like, like actual codes within the Bible? Exactly. Actually. So supposedly there were a, a number of predictions have been made in the Bible that said 9-11 was going to happen and said certain right. assassinations were going to happen. And this New York Times journalist, I think he was New York Times, Michael Drosnan, is introduced to this when he's in Israel, I think. And he thinks, oh, this is interesting to look into. And what's interesting is the first book is almost him as a skeptic going, wow, this is really odd that this stuff is happening. Book two, suddenly he's introducing the idea that maybe aliens had left some kind of um, tablet, which is waiting to be found, which can decode the thing. Please say the pyramids to me. As soon as you loop in the pyramids, I'm in. I'm in hard. <laughs> I'm not. I can't remember if they appear. But book three is the most extraordinary because it opens with an open letter to Barack Obama to say, "You need to come with me and find this alien tablet, which is going to unlock." And because the Bible code says that you're going to be important. And actually, that's the that's the end of the book. That's the big reveal that he wants Barack Obama to come with him. The book opens with him having made predictions that if Barack Obama that says Barack Obama is going to be made president, there's going to be an assassination attempt on him and all the stuff. And he's trying to get the letter to Obama. He can't do it. So he uses who apparently is the one source that can get things through the net to Obama. Dan Schreiber. 
Oprah Winfrey. Ah, oh, the Winfrey Yeah, effect. so Winfrey, I think, during the Obama administration, through all of her interest in spiritualism and all that stuff, was feeding stuff under the wire to Obama if anyone said, can you get this to, to the president? And she supposedly wow. did. And so this book ends by saying, this is an open letter, Obama. I need you to come to Jordan, I think it was, and find the missing alien tablet that's going to uncode the the whole of the Bible and save from a, the apocalypse, which is about to happen. Oh, wow. And then part of the WikiLeaks stuff that came out um, that Assange was, was releasing, mm. there was stuff in there about how Drosnin was like trying to get through to Trump and Trump was considering having meetings. I don't think it ever happened. If Trump says this guy's crazy, you know you <laughs> yeah, are. Exactly. You he, are verging on the way. He wings. never made it through. But yeah. yeah, so I, this is, I know nothing about this guy. Nothing about it. He's passed away, sadly, because I would have loved to have, I'd wanted to do a chapter in the book and it's not a cynical book at all, but it's the only thing I sort of thought, what the fuck were you thinking, Michael Drosnin? <laughs> what the, happened? I like the idea, but now here you are writing a book about theories. Let's yeah, get yeah. the plug in there. Right? Are you going to do a Drosnin? And by the time you write your third book about theories, you'll be full 5G. I was thinking that. I wonder if it's, because it does mess with your understanding of the world when you get into these places and read these theories. Um, as soon as you open a YouTube channel and it's Dan Schreiber in his car... <laughs> Coming up with theories. <laughs> That's it, man. He's through the looking glass. Um, listen, tell us about the new book, Dan, as we get, as we get towards the end of this episode of My Mate Bought a Toaster. Uh, well, the book is my interest in the fact that when I've been doing research all these years, I've always noticed that anyone who's supposedly meant to be quite rational and has changed the world always has this small little bit of batshit about them, which has kind of, I think, informed their thinking. And I think we're living in a time now where a lot of people say to think differently and to think weirdly is very dangerous and they equate it with like if you believe in Bigfoot you might then believe in right-wing Trump politics and MAGA and all that sort of I stuff see. Yes, I actually think take a step back and actually we've forgotten that a lot of these things are just really fun you know ghosts are really fun Bigfoot can be really fun The Loch Ness um, Monster here you are the story written by by Nicholas Witchell well here we go hang on not this by yes. the way was bought 5th of September 2022 so very recently very not recently Royal Correspondent Royal Correspondent Nicholas Witchell when he was 19 years old lived on the side of Loch Ness for 6 months in a self built hut with a long lens camera and binoculars and looked for Nessie and he was going to Leeds to study law and an opportunity came up to write this book about Loch Ness Monster and he still did law but that's why he went into journalism because he started writing this book and he thought this is amazing I love journalism and then he became the editor of the magazine and newspaper in Leeds and but so he for many many years he put on when he was breakfast host of the BBC he put on an expedition to look for Nessie yeah it's in like so that's the thing behind all these interesting people who you would think would not have any batshit about them yeah. and I use that affectionately because I think it's I think it's great that like Nicholas celebrate the batshit guys yeah exactly life's short um, celebrate the batshit so, so yeah so it's kind of like the you know there's a chapter on ghosts there's a chapter on UFOs there's a chapter on Titanic there's a, and you know Excellent. just Excellent. just theories that make you think differently and make you laugh as well you yeah. know yeah, but that's what life's all about. You've got to find these theories, otherwise life is very middle lane. And it Nicola- kind of reminds you, doesn't it? That it gives you goosebumps when you hear a crazy theory and yes, for a and it second. Yes. And, and then you just look, you, you remember you're in a universe. It's and, like a good ghost story. You're like, oh. yeah. You're like, what was that feeling that I got? I think this is incredible. Nicholas Witchell lived by the Loch Ness. But then of six course- months Six months. In a self-built hut. Six months waiting by a lake in Scotland for a dinosaur prepared him for standing outside Buckingham Palace for years and years waiting yes. for something to happen. Do and do you know what was going on inside Buckingham Palace? Prince Philip ran a sort of unofficial X-Files unit 
because he was obsessed with aliens. He used to have a subscription to Flying Saucer magazine. He had a guy, an equerry called Horsley, who was sent out to meet a humanoid alien that was supposedly living in London called Mr. Janus. And they they brought people Not to- Mr. Bu- Hugh Janus, please. <laughs> Come on, Philip. We should have seen that coming, mate. That's amazing. Yeah, they used to bring people to Buckingham Palace because the idea was, and it was usually RAF pilots who would make sightings of UFOs. The yeah, yeah, and yeah, then you've yeah. got the connection of Philip and Horsley, who were both ex-RAF. Um, they would bring people there because the idea was Horsley believed that no one could lie to Prince Philip because they saw him as like the ultimate lie detector. You wouldn't walk into Buckingham Palace. So if they came in and said, I saw a UFO, it meant they really did. Conspiracy theory Pope. He's the one. It, the buck stops with this guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Amazing. And then his his um, uncle, Lord Mountbatten, yes. not only believed in UFOs as well, wrote a report about an incident where a bricklayer who was working on one of his estates saw a UFO come down, open up, and an alien dressed as a farmer walking down a ramp. He submitted that. And Mountbatten had, he was writing to leading editors of newspapers saying, I need you to investigate more into the UFO thing and had his own theory that UFOs themselves, there was no people inside, that the UFO was sentient from a planet of sentient UFOs. And him and his wife would and friends would always talk about like, how do they mate? Maybe they run into each other and a chip comes off and that grows into a new UFO. Like that was Lord Mountbatten. And that would explain drones. Yes. Little baby ones. Exactly. That's what it was. Drones, yes, drones are just go. little baby UFOs. That's delicious. Is there a particular theory in, in your new book? Is there any one in particular where you're like, oh, that's got legs? I like, I, I'm really into synchronicity because as you kind of alluded to at the beginning when I met John Lloyd, synchronicity is kind of what got me my job because I had no qualifications. But three things came up during the chat that felt like we were meant to meet. And I really genuinely think that got me my job. Neither of us, I don't think, believe in synchronicity, but the feeling of connection that you get when it feels like the universe has brought you together is a really powerful thing. And so the sense of destiny is my, my favorite thing where you sort of have to step back from a situation and go, was I meant to do that? And there's there's a great story in the book about how um, when Ronald Reagan, there was an assassination attempt on him in 1981. Yeah. He's coming out of a hotel and a guy called John Hinckley Jr. took a shot at him. Yeah. So his Secret Service got detail, him, right? He was, he was well, here's the thing. Hospital. Yeah, so here's the thing. Jerry Parr, who was his Secret Service detail, immediately grabs him and shoves him into the back of the limo. But because he's so old and because he's like been thrown onto the floor of a limo, he's going to bruise anyway, naturally. He's an older guy. He's in his 70s, yeah. so he's hurting. And so they get out of there while the other dudes deal with Hinkley. And as they're driving away, Jerry Parr checks him. But there's no, as far as they can tell, bullet wound. There's no blood coming out from anywhere. So they're like, oh, my God, so you you must be okay. They're heading back to the White House. He's hurting, but he's hurting because he thinks he's bruised his ribs. Yeah. As they're driving back, a bit of blood comes out on his lip. Jerry Parr sees it and went, you've been shot. You've definitely been shot. I don't know where, but we need to get you to a hospital right now. And so they go against every protocol and they get him to a hospital. Doctors later say five minutes later, he would have died. Um, So so Jerry Parr saved his life and he was the acknowledged hero of this situation, that this is the Secret Service agent who who went against protocol, saved his life. The only reason that Jerry Parr was there that day to be a Secret Service agent for Reagan is because when he was a kid, his dad took him to the cinema to see a movie called Code of the Secret Service, which was all about the Secret Service and it had one hero leading Secret Service guy. He became obsessed over that character, thought, I want to do that with the rest of my life. Yeah. The actor who played the role of the leading Secret Service agent was Ronald Reagan. 
That's just ridiculous. He saved himself. That's ridiculous. He's he and and Jerry Parr believes that's it was destiny like that a, he was meant to be there. That's like a Back to the Future yeah. time loop. I know. God yeah, yeah. Dan. And the feeling that that gave me when I first heard well, that story, it really just makes you feel like, Ooh, is there something to it? And I don't think there is, but God, it's a good oh, feeling. Oh, who cares if there's not? Yeah, exactly. Oh, we're all going to die one day. Might as well enjoy the coincidences. Exactly. Listen, the synchronicity of us forming the new official Ben Elton book group. It, there you go. Yeah. That's the name of the WhatsApp group. Yeah. And uh, also, in terms of you being an eBay ambulance chaser, uh, one of the most recent <laughs> things you bought, and we will finish the podcast on this, a hand-signed photo of Ben Elton. So, Ben Elton, yes. if Dan Schreiber, if you're listening, Ben Elton, Dan Schreiber's <laughs> buying signed things of yours, get yourself a full medical. Please, Ben. Please. You're too important to let this go. It's the only way. No, I'm just so worried. I'm I so, am now as well. Please stop buying these I'm things. You're get killing a my heroes. Gotta get a refund. Uh, Dan Schreiber, I think you're wonderful. This has flown by. Thank you so much for joining me on my way. Thanks time. for having me, man. That was so much fun. Brilliant. That's it. That was great, man. Mate, and listen, I've charged your phone and that. Yeah. That's free of charge, man. Amazing. It's my mate. Oh, toaster. Oh, it's my mate. Oh, Dan Schreiber on My Mate Bought a Toaster. He does a little podcast called No Such Thing as a Fish. It's doing okay. Give it some support, guys. Go and give it some love. Honestly, it's worth a listen. If you haven't got it, that was absolutely sarcastic because it's massive and amazing. So obviously, you'll have heard of No Such Thing as a Fish. Uh, And uh, thank you very much for listening. That is the end of today's episode. And don't forget, if you want to listen to some of the bits we had to cut out of today's episode, not for legal reasons, just because it was running at about an hour and 20 minutes, um, then those clips are unedited, ad-free, and they are available right now over at patreon.com slash toasterpod. That's patreon.com slash toasterpod. For as little as £3 a month, uh, you can get early access you can get ad-free access uh, and you can hear all the bits that we cut out even when they're rubbish there's no such thing as rubbish bits though obviously Uh, that's patreon.com slash toasterpod who's on the show next week your guess guys is as good as mine i haven't booked anyone i haven't recorded anything i haven't got a clue but next week there'll be another episode of my mate bought a toaster it might just be me reading out clive james poems but That's all right, isn't it? That'll be fine. All right, then. All the best. Kind regards. Thanks for coming. Don't forget to like and subscribe. We are at ToasterPod on Twitter if you want to give us a follow. And any nice reviews and ratings you can give on your podcast platform always helps new people to discover the show. And therein ends another episode of My Mate Butter Toaster. Goodbye. Riding online shops just like a roller toaster. So fine when you're buying all of these strange things online, like books, weights, sets, and posters. Come on, here, the best of the best of my mate bought a toaster. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.